right, welcome to day 111 of Journey Through Scripture. Today we're going to be looking at Deuteronomy 33 through 34. That's the end of the book. So we're finishing the Pentateuch today. And then Psalm 49, and finally Luke 20, verse 27, through chapter 21, verse 4. All right, so we saw yesterday in Deuteronomy uh, the Song of Moses, which was uh, largely very ominous. And um, today we have a little bit of a tonal shift as we go into what um, what we might call Moses's uh, Moses's blessing. Obviously, taken from the heading of chapter three, this is the blessing with which Moses, the man of God, blessed the people of Israel before his death. Um, and so, first in this in this poem uh, that that uh, Moses spoke as a blessing for the people of Israel. Um, we see uh, first Yahweh coming, and we understand he comes from Sinai, Mount Sinai, but then you have other mountains mentioned as well. Uh, so Mount Seir is mentioned. That is a mountain in the territory of Edom. Edom is sometimes just called Seir. And then also Mount Paran. And there's a little bit of um, disagreement as to where exactly this is. Um, in uh, there, there's some indication that it's uh, that it would be it's one of the mountains in the Sinai Peninsula. Um, if you go back to the first verse of Deuteronomy, that kind of makes it se- seem like it's somewhere in the uh, in the region of Edom. So it's not exactly clear where this is from. Um, but anyway, uh, so the, so where why is Yahweh described as coming from Mount Seir? Uh, as well as Mount Sinai, you know, the two alongside one another? Well, the answer, of course, is pretty simple. That is the route that the people of Israel took when they came towards the Promised Land, right? They came through Sinai, and then they proceeded um, northward to the east of the Dead Sea and all that. And this um, this is a tradition that does crop up. This is a way of describing uh, the Lord, quote-unquote, coming into the land uh, that does happen um, elsewhere in the Old Testament, so the book of Habakkuk, uh, otherwise known as Habakkuk, chapter 3, uh, verse 3, begins with God came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Teman being an Edomite mountain. So yeah, so this, this, this area of approach is how uh, God is sometimes described as coming into the, the land. It says, all his holy ones were in his hand. And uh, the question is, is, well, what's he talking about there? Is he talking about angels? Is he talking about Israel? I'd say it kind of seems like Israel because the other characters in here all seem to be Israel. Um, they followed in your steps, receiving direction from you uh, when Moses commanded us a law as a possession for the assembly of Jacob. All right. Thus the Lord Yahweh became king in Jeshurun. There's that uh, Jeshurun that we saw yesterday. Remember from the word upright, that seems to be a play on the name Israel. Um, when the heads of the people were gathered, all the tribes of Israel together. So it seems like the holy ones are the people of Israel. And then you've got blessings given on each of the tribes, uh, very reminiscent of the end of Jacob's life when he blessed all of his sons. And um, interestingly, the tribe of Simeon is absent. All the other ones are accounted for. Um, Of course, uh, Joseph is, uh, both Ephraim and Manasseh are just referred to as Joseph. But Simeon is not here, and why is that? Um, well, I think there's two things to keep in mind here. First of all, recall that back in Genesis 34, when the brothers were upset with the defilement of their sister Dinah, 
uh, both Levi and Simeon took vengeance on the entire city of Shechem because of it. Uh, the, you recall that the, the son of the ruler of Shechem had, had raped Dinah, and, and they wanted to extract vengeance, and so they pretty much put the whole city to the sword. And, um, you know, the, obviously what was done to her was, was vile and wrong, and this was an act of vengeance, which was an extreme overreaction, right? Therefore, all the people in the city should die. Um, no. And as a result of that, both Le- Levi and Simeon kind of were, were um, uh, chopped down a few notches amongst the brothers, you might say, right? Uh, Reuben had already disqualified himself as a firstborn, um, and then Simeon, the secondborn, and Levi, the thirdborn of Jacob, had both done this now as well. And so they're both um, demoted in their position, and of both, it was said back there, um, I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. And we see how this pans out in Levi, uh, with Le- with the tribe of Levi, right? Because Levi has redeemed themselves in terms of being very zealous for the Lord when uh, you know these these great sins had been done among Israel. They are the ones who kind of stepped up and were used by God to be instruments of His judgment upon His idolatrous people. And so they are given the this place of uh, of kind of like a holy tribe from which the priests come, and the other Levites too are given the responsibility over the tabernacle. You guys are familiar with that by now. Um, but they also don't have their own inheritance, right? They they are quote-unquote, scattered throughout the land. They live amongst the other tribes. Well, Simeon too, but Simeon has not had um, a moment of redemption. And so throughout the Old Testament, there's a bunch of places where Simeon does seem to kind of recede into the background. Um, Indeed, if you look at a map of the tribal distributions in Israel when they eventually do settle in the land, Simeon is completely surrounded by Judah. So um, it's it's almost, um, you know, loses its distinct uh, identity. Um, notice also that uh, in the censuses of the the book of Numbers, the um, by the you have the census of the generation that came out of Egypt in Numbers one, and then the census of the next generation in Numbers twenty six, and there the tribe is reduced almost by half. So you know, there's there's a bunch of uh, factors that go into this, but uh, but Simeon does seem to be really losing prominence uh, among the tribes. So uh, it starts off with, uh, with Reuben, you know, and there's, there's just a lot of words of, of general blessing here. Um, probably don't need to go through like explaining all of them. Um, but, you know, uh, let Reuben live and let his, uh, but, but let his men be few. Okay. Is, is again, so it's a, it's a little bit of a, a rebuke, right. Um, towards Reuben that, they, that, that, Again, this tribe still has a place among Israel, but it's not going to be particularly prominent, especially in terms of its numbers. Uh, here, uh, Levi is mentioned next. Then, oh, sorry, no, Judah is mentioned next. Um, uh, hear his uh, voice and contend against his adversaries. So this is uh, this is um, you know Judah, of course, is the one um, who who eventually will receive the crown in Israel. Uh, so this is a, a fairly positive um, blessing as well. Then Levi comes, and Levi's given a lot of a lot of emphasis here. Give to Levi your thumim and your urim to your godly one. Remember, this is the means of discern one of the means of discerning God's will uh, in the Old Testament. 
and it's to be carried in the um, in the in the breastplate of the high priest. You do also have reference to that um, the the zeal that Levi displayed, which I spoke about a few minutes ago, where he um, where he was is willing to act as God's instrument of judgment when um, the people had uh, done these grievous sins against the Lord, and so that's that's. So it refers to two of the great places of testing. Interestingly, not neither of these is the place where Levi steps up explicitly, but Massah is Exodus um, 17. That's where the people first grumble and receive water from the rock, and Meribah is uh, the last one where where Moses, um, uh, you know, kind of loses his cool and attributes the water to, as coming from himself, and uh, so these become. The symbolic places of Israel's contention against the Lord in the wilderness, and in the midst of this attitude, this kind of way of thinking among the generations, Levi steps forward and here, who said of his father and mother, I regard them not, and disowned his brothers and ignored his children, for they observed your word and kept your covenant. And here the idea is that they, um, they, they, they didn't play any favoritism, even with respect to family, right? That they're that they're willing to um, judge honestly who has sinned and who is liable for um, to to God's judgment, uh, even if it be their own mother, their own children. Um, that they're they're willing to be honest about that and put the Lord's holiness first. And so they shall teach Jacob your rules and Israel your law. They shall put incense before you and whole burnt offerings on your altar. Um, so. Okay, um, then we have Benjamin. Uh, Benjamin, um, uh, the high God surrounds him all day long. Interesting way uh, to refer to God in that um, in, in, in that uh, the, that verse, verse twelve. Um, here we have the the emphasis on God's protection of him. The beloved of Yahweh dwells in safety, um, dwells between his shoulders. Uh, then you get Joseph, which of course encapsulates both the tribe of Manasseh, both west and east as well as the tribe of Ephraim and uh, of Joseph. Uh, you have um, this recognition of Joseph's place of prominence, particularly uh, stemming from the narratives of Genesis. So his is the, is the choicest gifts of heaven, the deep that crouches beneath, the choicest fruits of the sun, the rich yield of the months, the finest produce of the ancient mountains, and the abundance of the everlasting hills. So... Um, it, this extremely prosperous tribe, indeed, even in terms of just their sheer landmass, uh, the tribes of Joseph are very prominent. But I also note that this um, that they that they're the ones who tend to dominate in the in the kings of the nor- what will become the northern kingdom uh, in Israel. Also, Joshua is from the tribe of of Joseph. He is called here a prince among his brothers, firstborn bull. Right, he becomes he receives kind of like the place of the firstborn that 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 double blessing, which is played out historically in the in the splitting or the doubling of his inheritance between Ephraim and Manasseh. So, and there you have at the at the, at the in the last phrase of the blessing on Ephraim that acknowledgement. Right, they are ten thousands of Ephraim, they are the thousands of Manasseh. Uh, next up, you have uh, Zebulun and Issachar kind of taken together, talking about the abundance of the seas and treasures of the sand, which is interesting because um, neither one of the tribes is actually um, uh, on a coast, even of the Sea of, of Galilee, uh, but they are 
apparently portrayed here as as benefiting very much from that kind of trade and they're they're not far from it uh so you can easily see how they would be um how they would play a role in as kind of like middlemen for the a trade of things like um like snails and fish and um all uh, you know kinds of different um animals that became uh, prominent and useful in in that area gad is described as a, as a lion uh receiving some of the the best of the land and indeed um pretty much the entire jordan river is uh and then the areas east of it is uh is is occupied by gad so they have a they have an incredibly um, valuable track of land. Like you can't cross, you basically can't cross the Jordan River without ending up in the territory of Gad. Uh, Dan is described as a lion's cub. Gad also associated with a lion here, leaping from Bashan. Uh, that is that Dan, not that Dan is from Bashan. Bashan is um, Transjordan area in the north. Uh, the 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 territorial inheritance of Jan, Dan is actually very far south. It's just north of Judah, um, and so the, the it's the lion that's leaping in Bashan that Dan is likened to, not Dan himself being part uh, having Bashan in him. However, I will note that um, there's as we'll see in the book of Judges, the tribe of Dan does kind of uh, migrate very far north and have it has a, a notable presence in the city of Dan, which is one of the furthest northern cities in Israel. In fact, there are times in the Old Testament where the land is de, uh, of the people is described as from Dan to Beersheba. Dan being, again, in the far north, um, there's not many uh, prominent, important Israel cities, Israelite cities north of it, and then Beersheba um, being in the south, actually in the territory of Simeon, as I talked about them a moment ago. Um, Naphtali, you have uh, his blessing of focus on on the lake there. This will be the lake, the Sea of Galilee. They basically everything on the western coast of of Galilee is uh, Naphtali uh, territory. Uh, Asher is most blessed among his his brothers. Asher is very far north. They are blessed in terms of being a coastal city on the Mediterranean, a coastal tribe on the uh, Mediterranean, the furthest north of that, and the the further north you go, the more into the region of Phoenicia you get, which are great seafaring people, so they benefit greatly from that. You also have mention of bars. May your bars be iron and bronze. So that's uh, that's talking about uh, parts of the city gate, so the strength of their city gate. Um, may there be protection there. Um, and that's it for the blessings on the tribes. Um, there is There is none like God. O Yeshurun, who rides through the heavens to your help, through the skies in his majesty. He's the one who will thrust out your enemies and um, who commands Israel to destroy. So remember, we're, on the, we're, we're about to see the conquest of the land of Canaan. Um, uh, Israel lives in safety because of the Lord. And so um, happy are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by Yahweh, the shield of your help, the sword of your triumph. Your enemies shall come fawning to you, and you shall tread upon their backs. Then finally, the book of Deuteronomy ends with an account of Moses' death. We saw that he was instructed um, to go up Mount Nebo, just like Aaron had had to go up Mount Hor, and there um, 
met his end. And so Moses goes up, he views the land, he's given this extraordinary view of the land, and um, he he dies at 120 years old, which I noted yesterday um, very well may be um, a, a kind of like a nice round number to denoting full years. Um, not certain, but it certainly could be. His eyes, it says, were, were undimmed and his vigor unabated. So regardless of how old he was, he still had a lot in him. Um, no one knows the place he was buried. That is a, an important note. And it, and it seems to have to do with the idea that, uh, therefore, his grave would not become venerated and, and worshipped, uh, become like a place of worship or idolatrous worship or something like that. Um, no, he's, he's, he's buried humbly and the place of his burial is forgotten. Israel then enters a state of mourning, um, a time of mourning and weeping. And when he is done, they're done with that. Joshua, the son of Nun takes up the mantle of the leader of God's people. He is described as being full of wisdom and the people obeyed him. Uh, and then finally, we're told that since then there has not arisen since Moses there has not arisen a prophet um, in Israel um, like him, whom Yahweh knew face to face. Uh, none like him for all the signs and wonders that Yahweh sent him to do. Um, and th- this definitely sounds as if this epilogue is being written a considerable amount of time later than the rest of the book of Deuteronomy, than uh, some of the rest of uh, what we've read here. And um, and I, no- I, I just want to finish by noting this idea of this prophet like Moses. Uh, we talked about this when we were in Deuteronomy chapter 18, where you have the, the promise there that, right, that, that the Lord will raise up prophets from among your brothers. And so you have a prediction of the, the office of prophet coming. And um, but then also in that, that there seems to be speaking this idea of an individual who will come a prophet like Moses. Um, and then I noted there that the question is, well, what does it mean for a prophet to be like Moses? And here, actually, at the end of Deuteronomy, we see what it is. It's someone whom the Lord knows face to face and then also apparently um, accompanied by these great signs and wonders. And we do see in the New Testament, um, as I noted back then, that this expectation for a prophet like Moses to come is uh, is alive and well uh, among the Jewish people. In fact, when the when John the Baptist is doing his signs in the wilderness, and the Pharisees want to figure out who he is, uh, one of the things they ask him are, is, "Are you the prophet? This prophet who is to come?" And um, several times in the Book of Acts, however. Um, Jesus is connected to the um, to this promise of a prophet like Moses. So this appears to be one among several of the the roles, the the predicted figures from the Old Testament who coalesce in Jesus, um, this this prophet like Moses, and Jesus fulfills fulfills that office. Okay, let's go to Psalm forty nine. So Psalm forty nine is another one of the Psalms of Korah. Um, the sons of uh, Psalms of the sons of Korach, and begins directed towards all the peoples of the world. Right, hear this, all peoples, give ear, all inhabitants of the world, um, both high and low, rich and poor together. Here we have again those merism. Remember we had merism yesterday, where the the entirety is referred to by reference to the things on both ends. So high, low, rich, poor, everyone in between. Um, 
My mouth shall speak wisdom. The meditation of my heart shall be understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb. I will solve my riddle um, to the music of, a, of the lyre. So mouth is engaged, heart is engaged, ear is engaged. And it actually like sounds like we're, we're, we're in the book of Proverbs again. I mean, especially since it mentions a proverb, right? But it kind of sounds like these are a lot of wisdom themes here. Um, and the wisdom here that is imparted um, in, in this psalm is the, um, this, this, this notion, why should I fear in times of trouble? Um, and so, and, and the, the contrast that's going to then be drawn throughout the rest of the Psalms is the one who trusts in the Lord versus the one who trusts in their riches. Um, so the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me, those who trust in their wealth and the abundance of their riches, right? Why, why should I fear those things? Um, no one can ransom another or give to God the price of his life, for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice, that he should live on forever and never see the pit. And so the reason why the, uh, the, those who trust in riches should um, you know, have got it backwards, have got it wrong, is because no matter how much money you have, you're not going to be able to ransom your life from death. Death comes to everyone. And um, even though it says lands be called by their names, um, you know, like that, that like they're so they have so much renown in life that that in days to come, uh, places are named after them. Nevertheless, graves are their home forever um, and death shall be their shepherd. But then verse 15 is actually an extremely interesting uh, verse. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. Now, I think I've noted before, and if not, let, let me note now, that the theme of, of uh, I suppose we could say life after death, right? What happens to the godly after death is something that is, uh, is not nearly as prominent in the Old Testament as it is in the New. But that's not to say that it's entirely absent. In fact, there's several passages that are that are extremely enticing and indicate that there is a trajectory that is starting off where there's um, where, where God is revealing more about our destiny beyond the grave. And this is certainly one of those. I think that if it's very well in the context, it's not an overreach to say that of this passage at all, right? That God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. So you have here... Um, it is rare, but it does happen several times in the Old Testament, this casting of hope in God beyond the grave, something that, again, becomes much more explicit in the, in the New Testament. But this Psalm 49, 15 is, is noteworthy because um, you have that, you do have that here. Um, so, yeah, that's essentially um, the, the, the idea of Psalm 49, this contrast between the one who trusts in riches and the one who trusts in the Lord, and the one who trusts in the Lord ultimately is the one who has hope of redemption beyond death. Okay, let's go to Luke chapter 20. Uh, we're in verses 27 through chapter 21, verse 4. So Luke 20, 27, here, um, this is something we've seen before in the other Synoptic Gospels, the Sadducees who deny that there's a resurrection, uh, come to Jesus and ask him, uh, about this, uh, about leveret marriage, right? So uh, there's a woman 
whose husband dies. And then according to the Old Testament, which which we've read, uh, it is the brother's responsibility to, quote, go into her and produce offspring for uh, her brother. And um, we've seen also that uh, this is not uh, simply the woman being passed around like a piece of meat or something like that. I mean, obviously, this could be abused. But just to balance our understanding and, and try to get our head around where the ancient people's head um, minds were on this thing, if if a brother refused to do this, the woman actually could publicly shame him with the removal of the sandal ceremony before the elders of the gate. And so this is something that um, was important to uh, to a woman back then. That, of course, is not really the, the point of the Sadducees' challenge to Jesus, but I do think that's an important thing to keep in mind with some of these laws that, you know, strike us as extremely backwards. Um, that wasn't always the case. We, we sometimes, I think, uh, underestimate the amount of difference between um, our minds and the minds of the, of the ancients. There's some ways in which we are very similar, right? Our humanity is similar, and, um, and you know, there's, there's a sense in which there's nothing new under the sun. But on the other hand, it's very easy to underestimate the, de- the, the degree to which people were different from us and thought differently than us. Uh, the past is a strange place, it's been said. They do things differently there. The Sadducees are challenging Jesus on the question of the resurrection, right? How can it be that we're going to be resurrected? What's What are we supposed to make of a law like this, if that's the case? So this is, uh, this is basically being cited as a proof text against the notion of resurrection from the dead. Something interestingly that we just saw a little bit in Psalm 49, right? Um, and you know, when in the resurrection, who's, if this happened like seven times, right, and she's she's remarried to all these brothers in the resurrection, whose wife is she going to be? And Jesus's critique of them is basically um, that they are underestimating the, the power of God, that a denial of the resurrection is uh, is is a denial of, of God's power, of his ability to save, of his ability to mete out ultimate justice and all these things. So, um, those who are, so, so in the age to come, it's, it's, it's not going to be, first of all, it's not going to be about, about marriage. So the question of whose wife is she going to be in the resurrection is kind of uh, ridiculous anyway. That's not to say that marriage is unimportant, but marriage is also temporary. Okay. It doesn't endure into eternity. The thing that human marriage is supposed to image forth, right? God's love or Jesus's love for his bride uh, is now fulfilled, is now evident, is now on display for all to see. Um, so there's that, right? And then, um, and then also he challenges them, uh, you know, but that the dead are raised. Even Moses showed in the passage about the bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Uh, and I just want to um, note that um, it's sometimes I think it's I, I and I, I I mentioned this when we were talking about it in Matthew as well uh, this passage um, or you know this challenge by the by the Sadducees and Jesus's response to them that sometimes it is said that um, Jesus here is making a point on like a present tense verb I am the God of them or you are the God of them as opposed to you were um, I don't think that's the case and 
a lot of commentators would agree with me on this, um, because um, in Hebrew, there is no copulative verb. There is no is, was, the God, right? It's a, it's a verbless sentence. Um, and so, you know, it's not like Jesus is making a point on a word that's not actually there in the Hebrew text. Rather, it seems to be that, that the God who is, he seems to merely be claiming that, that the God of Israel who appeared to Moses in a burning bush, who is the God of, of all your forefathers, essentially, how weak do you think he is? How, how impotent to save do you think he is? Do you think that our forefathers just died and, and it's just over for them? Um, so it's a similar thing, but it's, he's not making a point on the specific wording of the passage is what I'm saying. So he's appealing to God's power here. And then he puts one to his opponents, and this is the one from Psalm 110, which again, we've seen before, where uh, he's asking a question about the Christ meant to... Um, Obviously, obviously, this is the question because some people are claiming that Jesus is the Christ, right? And so the question is, how is it that in Psalm 110, David calls the Christ who is going to be his son, right, his, his distant descendant, how is it that he calls him Lord? Um, again, David speaking in Psalm 110 writes, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So Jesus, right? So David's calling his um, his uh, descendant his Lord, and of course, you don't refer to your children that way in ancient cultures, in ancient Near Eastern culture, right? It's the Father who is honored. So why do we have here David honoring the one who's his great 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 grandson? That's you know the idea, the conundrum that he puts to them, and yeah. And then he goes and he says in the it says in the hearing of all peoples, uh, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces, and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts. Um, they make for a pretense they make a long prayer long prayers, but they devour widows' houses. And recall that how in the Old Testament even we've seen that the widow and the orphan and the sojourner too, right, are these people whom you are to act justly towards because these are the vulnerable in society. And so essentially what Jesus is saying is that these are the people who seem really important among you, but they actually have lives that are characterized uh, by injustice and doing wrong to the very people whom they should be they should be um, caring for, they should be showing God's love to. And uh, then it goes it goes to uh, contrasts that with uh, Jesus looked up, right? So he's still there in the same setting. He looks up chapter 21 and sees the rich all putting their gifts into the offering box. And then he sees one poor widow putting in two small copper coins. And as we've seen this uh, before, right? He says that she's put in more than any of them have uh, because they are contributing out of their abundance and she's given all that she has to live on. Like God regards her offering as far more valuable than theirs. And so, um, may we also give the Lord our best, as this, as the poor widow did. In uh, this isn't even a parable, right? This is Jesus uh, commenting on a woman before His eyes. All right. Thank you for joining me today. I look forward to being with you tomorrow. As always, until then, keep reading Scripture. Take care, and bye bye.